This is Scott Becker from the virtual event, our 18th annual Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC Conference plus the Business of Spine. We've got a magnificent panel today. We'll talk about current practice and also some other issues related to current practice that have taken sort of a backseat for the moment out of network, bundle of payments, venture capital, and more. A, a great, great group. Uh, let, let me take a moment and ask our four panelists to introduce themselves. Uh, Dr. Schuler, can I get you to start? Sure. Hi, my name is uh, Tom Schuler. I'm the CEO and founder of the Virginia Spine Institute, which is the largest interdisciplinary spine practice in the DC metro area. And, and I'm still active spine surgeon. And Dr. Blumenthal? Hi, my name is Scott Blumenthal. Um, I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon with the Texas Back Institute. Been there for uh, uh, 26 or so years and was a co-founder of the Center for Disc Replacement at Texas Back, uh, which has been going on for about the last uh, 10. In, in both part of magnificent practices, Nader? So Nader Sammy, CEO of National Medical Billing Services. We are an ASC focused uh, revenue cycle and advisory uh, company that uh, we have about 300 surgery centers across the country in about 35 uh, states and just, you know, and prior, so I've, I've been the CEO of National Medical for about 10 years. Um, prior to that, I was a corporate finance attorney and an investment banker, and then had started another revenue cycle company that we built up to about 2,500 people before, um, before selling uh, that company. Well, congratulations on your success, and thank you for joining us. And Dr. Bourbon? Yes, Sigurd Bourbon. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. I'm the chief of the spine group here at uh, UCSF, orthopedic spine surgeon and uh, uh, a professor in residence here at UCSF. And, and, and let me start with Dr. Bourbon, and I'll come back around to Dr. Blumenthal, Dr. Schuler, and Nader. Dr. Bourbon, just a couple thoughts on sort of the current new normal in practice. What does practice look like? What do you sort of expect the next couple of years? Yes, so Scott, we're in a process right now of, of evolution to what is going to be a, a new normal. Uh, so we had a, a significant uh, change in our practice uh, late in March, where we um, actually published on this in Journal of Neurosurgery, but we looked at a, a tiering system for our cases. We were, we were really only doing urgent and emergent spine cases. Uh, so we cut out the elective cases. We're transitioning now, for the last two weeks, we've been open to elective cases. Uh, but some of the real considerations we're dealing with now are what happens to a subset of patients who can't go home after surgery. So patients who need a rehab, patients who might need a, a SNF facility. We're still trying to avoid that subset of patients right now, patients who might require an undue amount of resources. We're very concerned about the possibility of a second peak here. And then we can talk more later about what the new normal is going to be. But I think a, a lot of things in terms of outpatient changes, telehealth, and uh, when we ramp up, I think it's gonna be as dependent on patients and patients' willingness to re-engage as much as uh, our willingness to serve. And, and Dr. Bourbon, two sort of follow-up questions. What does COVID look like in, in the San Francisco area currently? What does it look like in that area currently? Um, and then what is patient confidence in coming to big hospital systems, big health systems, or any kind of system for surgery right now? What do you see? Yeah, so Scott, as you likely know, is the first case that was identified in the U.S. was here in the Bay Area. 
uh, off of the Queen Princess, a passenger from the, from the boat. And uh, to that end, we've really been on high preparation uh, for a long time here uh, in San Francisco. We were one of the first uh, cities to start a quarantine. And I think what does COVID look like here in San Francisco? Uh, we've been very pleased with how well we've been able to uh, really flatten the curve that we expected. So compared to the type of a peak that we expected, uh, I think largely due to uh, very rigorous uh, uh, enforcement of quarantine here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we've really avoided the type of peak that's been seen in other parts of the country. Uh, at, at the peak here, um, uh, here at UCSF, uh, uh, we had a, about uh, only about 24 patients in the hospital uh, at the peak. Right now, um, there are six patients in the ICU, but we never really hit the type of a, um, a surge that we we're preparing for and the type of surge has been seen in other parts of the country, including the Northeast, fortunately. Thank you very much. And, and Dr. Blumenthal, a couple thoughts from yourself on what you're seeing currently. What does the new normal look like in practice? Well, it's, it's been a very interesting couple of months. So um, we actually were about a week ahead of the game. We, we felt, we saw what was going on on the coasts, and we stopped elective surgery at Texas back um, a week before Governor Abbott ordered the state to stop elective surgeries. We've been back up with elective surgeries for about five weeks now. Um, statewide and citywide, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, this is a good thing, we were overprepared. So on one hand, we were ready for an onslaught. On the other hand, the, the private hospitals are is distressed a business as can be right now. Um, and so, you know, you can go ahead and, and be a Monday morning quarterback, but it was probably better to be overprepared than underprepared. I agree with SIG, we're still staying away from patients that are gonna need uh, rehab after surgery. Uh, our main hospital, which is kind of a hybrid between a, a community, uh, you know, hospital and an ASC, which is just a surgical specialty hospital, we, we have no um, medical patients, we have no COVID, but we're testing all of our elective patients um, within 24 to 48 hours of the surgery. The, the office part of our practice, and, and you know, this is something that our guys have really embraced and we hope that the regulations stay favorable, is I can't believe how many patients that we can treat and see telemedically and that they don't have to come in the office, because you mentioned it, patients are still hesitant to go to a hospital or a doctor's office. So at least in kind of the elective spine world, you can do, a, we've learned how much you can do, and we can do, frankly, a lot with telemedicine. And, and I think we're still probably over 50% telemedicine visits, even you know a, a month after our elective surgery embargo stopped. Uh, Dr. Wilmenthal, you've been back at surgical practice for elective procedures for about five weeks now. What is that starting to look like? Is that back to 60%, 70%, 80% of pre-COVID, pre-quarantine volumes? What do things look like? You, you mentioned distress. Do they still feel so distressed, or do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? So by seeing the hesitancy of patients to, to come see the doctor and we, you know, you've seen it and you know, less people being admitted for heart attacks now, you know, where, where are these people going? Um, so the first five weeks, we basically had a backlog of the elective cases. So we've been at near normal, 
but with less patients coming to see us in the clinic for you know chronic back issues, neck issues, et cetera, they're just kind of waiting to see what's happening with COVID. I think we're going to see a, a, a dip once we exhaust kind of the backlog. So I, I think there is going to be a makeup period and it may be, you know, a quarter, two quarters. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what the, how comfortable people are. But it's a fascinating perspective because what you're saying is there was pent up demand. So volumes came back pretty quickly. Uh, but, but then once that pent up demand is taken care of, you will see a little bit of a dip and then it'll be a long-term return to normal is what I'm sort of sensing you. Yeah, yes, and, and you know, frankly, with the unemployment the way it is, I think we're gonna see um, you know, insurance issues. Patients have lost their insurance and, and that's commercial insurance drives elective spine surgery. So as an overview statement, not as distressed as it was a month ago, but of course the cash that came from procedures three months ago came in over the last couple months, and so you've got this trying to work through cash flow issues too, I assume, as you work to this new normal. That, that's, that's been challenging. And, um, you know, fortunately, we're a small business and qualified for the PPP loan. Thank goodness. Well, congratulations. That's good. And hopefully things will get back to a good new normal. Dr. Schuler, you've also got this magnificent practice in sort of the greater D.C. area, northern Virginia area, uh, one of the best renowned practices in the country. Um, yeah, private practice in the country, just like Texas Back. Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing and what the what things look like in coming back, just like Dr. Blumenthal's practice. What are you seeing there? Sure. You know, in, in, in the D.C. market, uh, we're, we're atypical to most of the country, and it's, it's because of the government. We have lots of government contractors, lots of government employees. So we don't have the unemployment issue in our market that you see in so many other areas of the country, which, which helps insulate, you know, what we do. Our practice is an elite out-of-network practice. Uh, and so we're not a large volume practice, even though we're, we're a reasonable size organization. Uh, and it's about providing quality care to people. And, and what happened during this crisis was most businesses shut down because they didn't know how to respond or what to do. And we all know about the story on the West Coast. We know about the story in the Northeast. Well, D.C. was slow to really get the volume of cases. And so uh, we stayed actively engaged. I'm on the board of, of the... HCA hospital in the area. And so I, I got to watch very close hand what HCA was doing uh, as well as a, as a physician, but also as a board member. And, and we just kind of mirrored what was happening in that uh, area. We stayed open the entire time. And in fact, what happened was most practices shut down or were incapable of switching to a telemedicine platform or to addressing patients. And we actually saw a huge shift from elective cases to emerging cases a lot of emergency volume came in in true crisis for many of these people. Uh, and, and it wasn't just radiculopathies and symptoms. A lot of times it was that people were having uh, significant neurologic loss, even, even uh, some, some significant cord findings. And, and so we were very fortunate to be able to stay open and to be able to function and, and provide essential life uh, improving services to these people. And so by going through that, that kept us functioning. And in fact, our lowest time, we dropped to about 60% uh, volume compared to normal. So we only had a 40% dip um, at the worst. We've, we've actually rebounded and we're at 95% right now in terms of volume. Uh, and, and the question is what these gentlemen have all said is, 
is there going to be a dip after that, uh, or is it going to go on? I, I don't think there's going to be a second wave. If so, it'll be way distant fall, winter. Uh, I think that um, the entire prognostication that was going on with this virus uh, was out of a lack of knowledge and not inappropriate at the time. But I think as, as we reassess, we're living in a very different world. And for an organization that stayed open, we did furlough a small number of people. We did take everybody out of the office who could be out of the office. But we still kept 66 staff in the office and used excellent technique to handle patients coming in. Uh, and, and really, we had, knock on wood, we had zero incidents of COVID in our practice or in our patients in spite of Northern Virginia being a hotbed. And so I just think that there's so much misinformation and hype about this that is detrimental to the, the health of our nation and the health of our patients. And I think that if, if you really use excellent technique that you're able to function during this time. In fact, something that was very important to me was to hear one of my patients say to me just recently saying, I've never had a problem coming in to see you because you guys were doing all the right things in terms of screening patients, uh, cleaning surfaces, taking care and doing precautions. So I think that, that we have to protect our patients, we have to protect our employees, and we have to use good common sense, but it doesn't mean that we have to be incapacitated or shut down, and that's in fact where we were. And so that's, that's kind of a summation of our market. Northern Virginia is still significantly active with COVID, but the rising numbers or, or stable numbers are really due to the increased testing as opposed to an increased actual incidence of the disease. Now, Dr. Schuler, I think many would agree with your prognosis or thoughts in this, particularly those in the proceduralist world who have themselves often had to be slowed down in the last couple of months, and other than in, in certain very densely populated areas or serving in nursing homes, have not seen nearly this sort of, they certainly are seeing more and more infection rates, but not seeing the horrible outcomes that people really expected from COVID in very, very complicated situation. When you talk as you do about how this wasn't as bad as expected, which is something that Dr. Blumenthal said as well, how much pushback do you get from people? How much of that becomes, it almost becomes a, 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 a political dispute or divide to even talk like that today? Any thoughts on that, on sort of the politicization so, of all this? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a member of YPO, Young Presidents Organization, and so I get a chance to sit and talk with CEOs of a multitude of businesses uh, throughout the Mid-Atlantic area and also nationally and internationally through a lot of web, web talks. And what I have found is that more and more people are thinking like I have thought all along, uh, and, and they're coming to grips with the fact that the quarantine itself may not have been necessary. Social isolation, good techniques, maintaining proper social distance, those are all important. But was the quarantine, was the shutdown of businesses essential? It was a smart decision at the onset, but as time has progressed, it makes less and less sense. And I think that's the pushback you're seeing in the country. Now, clearly there's a large political divide and that fuels some of the, the conversation and positions. Uh, but I think that there's, in this election year, there's a lot of political agenda that is being inserted into this conversation that may not be completely rational. I don't disagree with the decision at the beginning. I don't understand the ongoing concepts as we move forward. And, and so in, in my arena, dealing with CEOs, I don't see pushback. I see conversation and, and I'm open to all sides. I'm open to hearing what everybody has to say, but that is my experience running a business 
in a significantly active area and having zero incidents in spite of being there. I've talked to people who say, oh, if we open up our office, we have to walk counterclockwise through the halls and you can't backtrack and you can't. And I'm like, that's just ludicrous. That's ludicrous. Good technique well, is essential. No, and we appreciate your frank discussion. There's not enough of it today without it becoming a war. So we appreciate your thoughts very, very much. And, and thank you. Nader, let, let me ask you, you have the chance to work with practices all across the country. Give us a sense of what you're seeing in terms of the new normal ramping up. You know, in some places, I know you could work in some places where this severely impacted practice. In other places, it's been a complete debacle. What's your sense of what's going on in practices across the country? Yeah, no, Scott, it's, uh, it's, it's been actually really interesting to watch. We track um, by client. So we have about, as you mentioned, about 300 surgery centers. So again, this is surgery center focused from, from uh, the perspective that I'm looking at it. And with 300 across the country, we have a pretty interesting uh, kind of cross-section of data. And we look at every single day what the volumes have been. And back in April, volumes dropped by across kind of the entire client base by about 80%. Um, and, then it, and then it went, you know, kind of picked up, went from down 80% to down about roughly 60% in the first week, you know, 50 to 60% in the first week of May. And then it was down, you know, roughly 40 and then 30. And in the last, you know, week to 10 days, it's been down in the 15 to you know, roughly 15 to 18% range. We've had some days where we've seen kind of 90 plus percent volume. So it's definitely moving back, but it's definitely, but it's also broken down. You know, it's very different by uh, which state you're in and which specialty. So some of the specialties, for example, pain management. And uh, um, uh, you know, one of the comments uh, that Tom made was that um, they stayed open. And so our center, you know, that we saw that stayed open in our own specialties that potentially, um, you know, bounce back a little faster. And pain, like I said, pain management's one that we've seen has, has kept their volume up and gotten it up pretty quickly. Um, yeah, more recently, cataracts are happening um, relatively quickly. Total joints are getting back in. So I think the areas where people you know, certainly are in pain um, and, and it's more urgent are bouncing back faster. So it's a little bit of a range. We've got some clients at 40 or 50% volume only still. So it really is a mix um, across the board. And so, um, but, but it, it, it feels as though uh, the, the trends going, it's, it's difficult to tell, you know, if there will be that, it, it's that backlog and then a dip, but it feels like, you know, late June to July seems to be trending to, you know, a closer to a normal, you know, full volume. Um, but again, it's a little difficult to, to tell no one really has a full crystal ball on that and what's going to happen. It's going to be interesting to see, by the way, when you, when you factor in, you know, what's gone on, you know, from the protesting over the weekends and obviously a lot of social distancing kind of out the door. <laughs> that's going to, I think, take this one of two directions. It's either going to create a spike um, in, in potential more COVID patients or to the extent that it doesn't further accelerate the opening um, and, and uh, you know, the speed to back to normal. So I think that's, I think a lot of people are going to be watching that as well. Well, and it's fascinating to see the sort of news media move to the next crises and how, how quickly sort of COVID came out of the news at least for a week or so. And we'll see whether it returns to news. And then as Dr. Schuler mentions, it'll be fascinating to see this fall or winter, if there is another wave of infections, 
if this is like a typical respiratory virus that is more prevalent in a flu season type of way, what the country's perspectives will be on close downs again or not. I mean, whether people will say, oh, we'll buy into the concept of the quarantine or not. It'll be fascinating to see the sort of perspective of people this winter, depending on vaccine and all kinds of other things. Not let me ask you one other question. I'll come back around to Dr. Bourbon, Blumenthal, and Dr. Schuler. Your sense of the long-term impact on practices of both COVID-19 and the economic recession that you're looking at. I mean, they're looking at unemployment, you know, 30 million, 30 million people out of work, um, 18% unemployment, at least for some period of time, obviously with the social unrest that will lead employers to be slower to reemploy because nobody wants to heavily employ if they don't know what's going on with their business in a, in a, in a time of uncertainty. Thank goodness in the healthcare business, uh, a lot of that's a little bit more recession resistant, not completely, but a little bit more so than a lot of other industries. What's your sense of the long-term normal or prospects for the clients that you work with? Do you see, what's your sense of what you see? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's the big question here. How is this going to play out? You know, in terms of the downside, as you mentioned, and I think has been discussed here, you know, patient, you know, concern, patient fear of, of going in, you know, for a healthcare procedure that they don't absolutely have to have is part of it. Um, the you know, potential, you know, uninsured um, people out of jobs in general, um, those types of issues are absolutely you know, concerns to factor into this. But one, one thing that's going to be interesting to see is I know we've seen 40 million plus unemployment claims filed over the past, um, you know, eight to 10 weeks uh, since COVID really kicked in. One of the questions that will be interesting to see is, is that an inflated number given, you know, the policy where anyone who, you know, was making $48,000 or less essentially got a pay raise to, um, you know, if, if they went to unemployment. So I, you know, I know a lot of uh, Dr. Trula, I'm a YPO guy too, and so we have a lot of these conversations. And, you know, I've seen a lot of folks that um, it was, it was a, it was a safer and wiser move and an employee friendly to actually lay off or furlough people uh, when potentially they could have held on to them. And you've also got the balance of they're looking to hire folks back um, who don't want to come back until August because they're making more as it is. So it'll be interesting to see what that real number is from an unemployment uh, standpoint when that, when that settles out. So those are the, those are the concerns that could slow um, the, the growth back. But I think the flip side is one of the things that we have really seen is, um, which I think is an enormous driver for surgery center business anyways, is the hesitation and concern of going back into the hospital now when there are COVID patients, but even if there aren't tomorrow, I think the, the issue of there being more sick patients and infected patients in the hospital over specialized surgery centers, um, I think that has become more of a common and mainstream message now where I think prior to that really it was people in the industry understood that pretty well. Um, given that that's become a focus, we see a lot of people, for example, and I think it could drive, it could drive Medicare to accelerate Proving, for example, total hips in surgery centers, um, you know, on a faster basis, and other types of procedures like that, where um, it's a patient-centric kind of patient safety approach, uh, where the patients are really um, going to choose, if given the choice, 
preferring to move those types of cases. And a lot of those cases are higher acuity, higher reimbursing type cases. So I think that there's a big opportunity. You know, the surgery center market was projected to grow at about 7% annually over the next few years as it was. And I think this will only accelerate that growth with areas like cardiology, spine, and orthopedics uh, being at you know, 25 to 30% growth rates, um, even again prior to COVID. Thank you very much. And, and, and Dr. Bourbon, I'm gonna ask each of the following question, uh, 30, 60 seconds each. Are you optimistic about the future? Now, I'll probably actually ask you one other follow-up question each as well, but Dr. Bourbon, your sense, how optimistic are you about the future? Uh, will things come back? Will they be bustling and hustling in, in health systems? Will they be going great? You're one of the great academic medical centers in the country. What's your prognosis on the longer term? Yes, so Scott, I can offer a perspective that perhaps is a little bit different than, than both Tom and Scott. Tom and Scott are operating in a pretty rarefied environment of patients who are We've got commercial insurance patients who are at our network. At UCSF, we've got 15 full-time spine surgeons uh, doing close to 4,000 cases a year, and we take care of a broad spectrum of the population. And, and I'm very cautious. In terms of optimism, optimism, I don't think that this pandemic is over at all. I think we're going to see some major bumps in rates of uh, COVID after what's been happening with some of the protests and activities over the weekend. And I think this is going to really last. This pandemic is going to last until we've got, a, we've got a, uh, uh, an effective vaccine. And this is certainly going to be something that's going to be a major issue all the way through November. And what I want to point out here, and I think it's a really important point in terms of long-term changes, is what we're going to find out is we're entering a major recession. We're seeing numbers in range of 40 million plus of people who are unemployed, people who can't access health care. That's the subset of patients who I'm really concerned about, the patients who, who um, have lost their, their health insurance and who have needs for urgent care. That's the, number one reason for, that's the number one reason for personal bankruptcy in the U.S. So come November, I think the long-term impact on this is this going to absolutely introduce the need, not just the option, but the absolute need for universal health insurance. And that's going to be the long-term impact. It, 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 let me ask you that question, because certainly with 30 million plus unemployed and so many people traditionally getting their, their insurance through their employers, I mean, isn't this going to bring back Medicare for all or some kind of universal plan, at least a public option, because if you're unemployed and you, and you have some money, um, the single insurance company choice you have in most markets is a horrible choice. So if you're in that situation, you have some money, you at least want a public option. If you don't have money, then you want universal health care or Medicare for all. And, it, and it, you know, and it's, it's people of all races, all colors, all, all socioeconomic areas, isn't this going to lead to a big push for those things, Sick? Scott, I think if there's one take-home message of, of what I would predict for the future is, is this is going to open the door and, again, the need for a universal option. Right now, the working poor are the people who are excluded. The working poor have lost their insurance are the people who are at high risk for personal bankruptcy, and it's intolerable right now. We've got to have a universal option. And, and, and you have a different perspective in a densely populated city, and, and I guess both Tom and Scott are in densely populated places too, but potentially nobody really knows exactly that much yet, but whether COVID's going to be more prevalent in northern climates versus southern climates, you know, at least within the United States, and, and be more like the typical flu band as to how it hits the United States and the respiratory infections. One other question on vaccines. This is the kind of vaccine, seemingly the more that I understand, and I'm a layperson compared to you folks, that's going to be closer to a flu vaccine 
where they do a new one every year or so, and they develop it, and it's effective for 30 to 70% of the people. It's not perfect, but greatly reduces the amount of infection versus a silver bullet type thing like the polio vaccine, which is good and bad. I mean, the positive being, they'll probably be able to get to a vaccine pretty quickly. The downside being, it's not gonna be a silver bullet for everybody, but should seriously reduce the amount of people that suffer horribly from this. And we don't know if it'll help the really fragile population or vulnerable population. Sig, any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, we're not sure how, exactly how effective the vaccine is going to be. The Oxford vaccine seems to be pretty promising right now. Um, you know, will, will the COVID virus be something? Will COVID-19 be something that's going to have slight variations in antigenicity such that uh, we need to modify it every, every year the way we do for an influenza vaccine? Or is this something that's going to be a once-off for COVID-19 specifically? You know, I think what's being designed right now is something that's very effective for COVID-19. And uh, how much is this going to vary on a year-to-year -year basis? I think we're all hoping that this won't be like influenza, but rather something that's going to knock out COVID-19 more like a silver bullet or at least get 80% of the population immune so that we can have a herd immunity. Well, let's hope so. That's at least one bit of optimism for you, and thank you very much. Let's hope that that's what it is. We'll see, but thank you very, very much. Uh, Scott, some of your thoughts, Dr. Blumenthal, on Optimist. Are you optimistic about the future? Are you worried about the future? What's your sense of things? Yeah, I, I'm very optimistic. I, I do feel that, you know, we'll get back to normal quicker. I think we will incorporate telemedicine into our practice. I think next year when, when flu season starts again, some of the social habits that, that Tom was talking about earlier, just, you know, being aware of who you're around, you're sick, stay home, wash your hands a lot. Um, I think that's going to help mitigate even the next flu season. Will we see, you know, a second wave? Yeah, I think most of the epidemiologists feel like that, but I don't see it anything that's overwhelming. Um, you know, I think Sig brings up some really good points economically of that that there will be more chatter about a public option. Um, I've done a lot of of uh, work out in Australia. And they kind of have everything. They've got a pure public option, a part private, and then uh, an elite, like uh, Tom was describing, uh, you know, with, with, with his practice. So, you know, is that a possibility? Yeah, it, it might be, but it's not going to be, you know, a universal for everybody. Um, I think, it, you know, I think, I think we will be looking at more public options. It is a fascinating situation how this COVID-19 has impacted different areas so differently. I mean, it really has, and it really leads to not just the politicization of it, but very different perspectives on it. Because if, if you're in Texas, where you've had a very small number of deaths comparatively to some other places, you view it with a different eye than you might view it if you're in New York City. I mean, just very naturally, not, not, with, not with bias, not with a problem, it's just naturally where people are coming from because they've seen different things. Dr. Blumenthal, any thoughts on Perspective. Yeah, when, I, when I was thinking about this and, and, you know, you, I kind of liken the United States to Europe. I mean, Europe had Italy and Spain, but some of the other countries didn't have it as badly. We had New York, New York or the tri-state area, which, which had an, just, a, just an inordinate percentage of cases and not cases, well, cases as well and deaths. You know, if you take that out of the U.S., I don't think we'd be even having this conversation. So you're right. I, I think it is, is a regional, it's a regional thing, and and uh, you know perhaps that's where some of our optimism comes from. But you know Tom's on the East Coast, and 
you know, I think we share the same optimism. And Tom, some of your thoughts on optimism about the future, and what is the business community saying in terms of what you hear from YPO and so forth? So I think most people are ready to get back to work, but they're trying to figure out when they can legally do it safe without the lawyers coming after them for fear of rebound, for fear of paranoia amongst employees. There are a lot of employees who like working from home, uh, and so it's a good excuse for them to be able to go to visit their relatives and, and supposedly work, uh, but be there. And, and everybody says, hey, look how effective we've been. We should be able to work from home, but reality while COVID was raging, the weather was bad, um, nothing was open, and it was easy for people to be productive from home because they were trying to stay away from their kids, their family, whatever. And I think that when, when everything's open and functioning, it'll be a different world. What we can say is that we've had a decade of innovation in the past two months, past two and a half months. And if you look at it, there's a lot of changes. I agree that there's gonna be a continued push for a single payer system of some form or fashion, that's, that's been overwhelming. But what we know from England is that they have a single payer system there, but the top producing HCA hospital in terms of profitability, in fact, the top six producing are from England. And that's because people aren't willing to be stuck in the socialized system and they look for an out. So I think that regardless of what we get, if we get the single payer system, which will be Medicaid for all, it won't be Medicare for all, it'll be Medicaid for all. If we get that system that we will, um, always have Americans that are not willing to accept that and, and say that, oh, I want my MRI today. I want to get my surgery done this week. I want to get this treatment. And so I think there's going to be an opportunity for those that are willing to provide unparalleled customer service to be able to offer service to people. I think that for the masses due to a recession, that there's going to be a need to have some sort of safety net. And I do think that there'll be an expansion of Medicaid or we'll develop this quote, Medicaid for all system so that people can be covered. Well, what I would like to say is that um, one of my compatriots who, who runs a thousand plus engineering firm and said that the experience in South Carolina, in Florida and other state, southern states is a world of difference from the mid-Atlantic and, and the Northeast because it just was a non-issue in most of those areas, which comes down to climate. The virus is denatured by warmth, by sunlight, by humidity. And so any state that's in a warmer, more humid environment, sunnier environment, is not having the issue, which again shows why there's such a regional difference. The other thing is, I think that the more affluent people have an easier way to socially separate. If you're living in an apartment with people on top of each other, it's very hard to socially separate. Uh, whereas if you have your own private home in a backyard, then it's much easier to socially separate. So there really is a significant socioeconomic factor driving who's struggling the most, not completely. And then ultimately we gotta have people accept personal responsibility for their health. Who, who's getting the sickest people with comorbidities? There's 50% of the population over 65 has type 2 diabetes. This is a lifestyle choice in many of these cases. So what are people doing to take care of themselves to avoid problems? And, and, and when you look at it, um, it's just, it's something which I think there's change coming on. I'm optimistic. I think the future is bright. Healthcare is not going away. Uh, we need to justify why we exist and take great care of people. But I, I think that there's a great future. We obviously have to be careful and deal with the societal changes that are going to come about because of the presence of this virus. Thank you very much. Nader, your final thoughts. Optimistic about the future or not? What do you see? 
So Scott, I am generally bullish. A couple things, um, you know, again, same kind of idea, cross section of different businesses, uh, friends or CEOs, and you know, from home building to manufacturing, um, to you know, healthcare services to banking, and everyone is actually well ahead of what they had initially projected in their downturn. Not ahead of their original projections, but relative to what they projected was going to happen. And you know, when this hit in mid March and April, everyone is ahead of projections from that standpoint, and, and generally feeling better and more optimistic and about where this is going now. Difficult to tell again if there's a second wave. There's you know round two of this. Um, other you know obviously the so, some of the social issues going on you know separately creating other issues and challenges. So I mean I think we're in a challenging time for our country in general, um, and and I'm I'm uh, you know concerned but hopeful. But from a pure healthcare business, uh, the business of surgery and surgery centers in particular, I'm very bullish and think that the market will grow you know, long-term faster than it would have, you know, if, if I looked at this a year ago. Thank you very much. What, what a fascinating discussion. I know we went way beyond the concept of just core practice issues, but hearing all of your perspectives from a socioeconomic perspective, just fabulous. I want to thank Dr. Schuler, Dr. Blumenthal, Dr. Bervin, Nader Sammy. Just a pleasure visiting with you. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Thank you folks so much and such great thoughts today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Scott.